This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for listening. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we are glad you are here. Tell your friends, grow the family as we go on this radio journey together every day. If you can't listen between those hours live, which we always recommend, you can get our podcast, which is free of charge every day on demand all of the information about how to listen at GuyBensonShow.com, plus everything about the podcast there as well. You can follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us. If you're new here, we're particularly delighted to have you. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, where I write every day. I'm also a Fox News contributor, and I have an eventful schedule tonight. I'll be on the special report panel. Around 6.45 Eastern on Fox News Channel with Brett Baer hosting my co-panelists on set will be Mara Lyason and Katie Pavlitz. Looking forward to that. And then a one-on-one conversation in the following hour, the 7 p.m. hour, about half past on FBN, the business network, with my friend Kennedy. So you can make a note of those two television appearances. Here on the radio side of the world, we've got a lineup in store for you that you don't want to miss. Senator Marsha Blackburn Republican of Tennessee, just back from Taiwan. She will be here later this hour. In the next hour, Britt Hume will join us, senior political analyst at Fox News. Andy McCarthy, also in our middle hour, the latest on this judge ruling on the special master to review the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. That story just continues to unfold. And then Byron York on immigration and this big war that's broken out, basically rhetorically, between Blue city mayors and sanctuary city mayors, one and the same in these cases, although I did see that Mayor Adams in New York has now deployed a delegation down to Texas at the invitation of Texas to at least see what's happening at the border. But that fight continues to happen on the political end. Meanwhile, a new poll has Governor Abbott with a sizable and steady lead in his reelection campaign. So we'll break all of that down coming up with Byron York upcoming in our final third and final hour here on the show today. Now, I wanted to begin with a different topic. The original plan was to talk about the student loan scheme, the debt, quote unquote, forgiveness scheme from the president, which I think is terrible policy, illegal and bad politics for the Democrats. I might get into some of that later on this hour, and perhaps we'll ask Senator Blackburn about it. What I was sort of debating back and forth in my own head was, do I want to lead today with the issue of election denial, election trutherism, and all of that? 
because as I've said before, I think very transparently with all of you, the more we're talking about these types of fights that the Democrats and the media want us to be talking about, the more we're kind of taking the bait. And I also separately but relatedly have no interest in defending Donald Trump on what he did and said about the 2020 election, which he lost and then lied about constantly, which helped lead to and inspire a violent riot at the Capitol on January 6th of last year, which I've been very critical of. And I don't apologize for any of that. And I know some of you probably are annoyed by that or disagree with me. That's fine. I can live with it. I hope you can live with it. We'll disagree to disagree. This is where I come down on that issue on this show very clearly. All that being said, Right. Do I want to even go there when there's so many things happening? When the left wants us talking about this issue set, because I think it benefits them and motivates their people and distracts, frankly, from all the myriad failures of this administration, Team Biden and the Democratic unified control of Washington, D.C. I think that's absolutely what they have in mind. So, like, there's the risk of falling into the trap and also When I'm critical of Trump and I talk about these issues and then I present another side, then in come the immediate allegations of finger pointing on whataboutism. Oh, you say that you're not defending Trump, but here you are criticizing the Democrats on something that's not the same thing. That's whataboutism. You're muddying the waters, Benson. You're a hack, right? This is this is what you get in a no win situation. However, Because I have confidence in my ability to communicate clearly and confidence in the collective intelligence of this audience, I think we can have these discussions together without springing the trap or without engaging in hackery and while stiff arming some of the unfair critiques that come in. And I think the critiques are often self-serving on this issue set from the left. So, for instance, we played you earlier in the week, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman, finally asked about her election-denying tweets. She had tweeted that Trump did not legitimately win the 2016 election and that Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia had actually lost the 2018 gubernatorial election in that state and that the rightful winner, by implication, was Stacey Abrams. That was out there in the Twitter sphere from the official account of the woman who is now the spokeswoman for the president of the United States who purports to be aghast by people who say such things and deny election results and won't acknowledge what actually happened in an election. That's what he says. She is the top spokeswoman. Peter Ducey, our colleague here, finally called her on it, and she seemed eager to answer it, and then her response was very weak. Because there is no good response, frankly. Here's what she said in case you missed it. Cut one. You tweeted Trump stole an election. You tweeted Brian Kemp stole an election. If denying election results yeah. is extreme now. Yeah. Why so let's let's be really clear that that comparison that you made is just ridiculous. I was talking specifically at that time of what was happening with voting rights and the what was in danger of voting rights. That's what I was speaking to at the time. And he pushed back, saying, how is it ridiculous? And truthfully, it's not ridiculous at all. This is a phrase that I think I coined, which is the pushback against the whataboutism allegation. Sometimes it's not whataboutism, it's just aboutism. 
if we are horrified by people who refuse to acknowledge legitimate election results because they don't like the results, and then you point out that the people who are professing to be just aghast and appalled by such things, that they have in fact done that themselves, that is not whataboutism. That is aboutism. You're pointing out the hypocrisy. Now, you can say Trump took it to another level and January 6th was unlike anything else we've seen before on that front. I agree. I don't dispute that. But President Biden, he gave the speech last week, right, where he was talking about the MAGA Republicans and the threat to our very way of life and our republic and our you know, system of government in the United States. That was the big speech he gave kind of looking like a dictator with the blood red walls behind him, that whole thing, the optics. Then Peter Ducey, like one of the only reporters, it seems, with a pulse over there, was able to shout a question over to Biden. Do you believe all Trump supporters are threats to America? And he said, no, he doesn't believe any of them are only people who encourage violence or won't denounce violence, which I would again point out Biden himself hasn't done on the assassination plot still against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. I have not seen him disavow Nancy Pelosi for explicitly declining to condemn domestic terrorism against pro-life pregnancy centers. So, again, there are little asterisks and caveats. It's fine when they do it, right? This is what Jean-Pierre is saying in that answer we just played. It's actually – it's ridiculous to ask me about that because it's totally different because when I did it, I was talking about voting rights. No. She was saying that an election wasn't real, the outcome wasn't fair or legitimate because she didn't like the person who won. That's it. She finally got asked about it. She was like, oh, yeah, here we go. Get ready for my fastball. And it was just this, like, pitiful reply. Like, that's what you worked on all these many months as you anticipated this question? So – If President Biden is serious, and I've made the point, I don't think the Democrats are serious at all on these issues, right? They are putting their money where their mouths aren't on this. Oh, it's a threat to democracy. These MAGA Republicans, we need to unify with good Republicans. Meanwhile, let's spend $50 million and counting to try to puff up and promote the MAGA Republicans to get them into the general election. That's what they're actually doing with their money. That's the real story. They don't believe their own rhetoric, but they want us to believe that they believe their own rhetoric and they want us to agree with their rhetoric and they want moderates and independents to come over on their side because of that issue. Like if you care about the Constitution and the country, you must put country over party and vote for us, which is how it always works for them. Right. Country over party weirdly always happens to coincide with what the Democrats want. Right. That's the good of the country. In their minds. So if Biden says that if you refuse to acknowledge the results of an election, that is a threat to democracy. That is what he told Peter Ducey a few days ago when pressed on his message. Okay, if that is his standard, then and this is what I want to play for you. And it's a bit long, broken up over a couple minutes. The Republicans have put together a very long montage of prominent Democrats, one after another, denying or questioning the legitimate results of elections because the people who won are people that they don't like, i.e. Republicans. 
over and over again. This is during the Bush era and the Trump era. You will recognize a lot of these voices, of course. Let's start with cut eight. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. Nancy Pelosi, May 16th, 2017. Our election was hijacked. There is no question. You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you. Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election. He knows he's an illegitimate president. I think he's an illegitimate president that didn't really win. So how do you... You know, fighting against that in 2020. You are absolutely right. He's an illegitimate president. The election, in that sense, was unfair because the Russians hacked. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president. He's illegitimate. And my biggest fear is that he's going to do it again with the help of Vlad, his best pal. And we're going to be stuck for six more years in this guy. And that is terrifying. It's terrifying. Would you be my vice president for candidate? <laughs> Folks, look, I absolutely agree. That's halfway through. Hillary Clinton saying, what, three or four times that Trump was an illegitimate president? Saying that the election was stolen from her? Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States. What was he, the 39th president? Saying that Trump, quote, didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost. The word illegitimate coming up over and over again. That was just with Trump. And these are not minor players, backbenchers in the House of Representatives objecting to the counting of the electoral votes, although they did that, too. With Bush and with Trump, they did that. Not to the extent that the Republicans did in 2020. I'm not drawing an exact parallel. I'm just saying this was and has been normalized on the other side of the aisle. They want to pretend that isn't the case. They fume and get very angry when you point this out. It doesn't make it any less real. So the montage continues going further back. Cut nine. Bush versus Gore. A court took away a presidency. Speaking to a Democratic group in Chicago Tuesday, he made it clear he thinks Al Gore was the winner. Actually, I think I carried Florida. (laughs) We actually won the last presidential election, folks. They stole the last presidential election. Said Al Gore won that election. I think he won it anyway. Rolling Stone published a lengthy article asking, was the 2004 election stolen? What I observed uh, as a voter, as a citizen of Illinois, uh, four years ago, were troubling evidence of the fact that not every vote was being counted. We cannot declare that the election of November 2nd, 2004 was free and clear and transparent and real. As we look at our election system, I think it's fair to say that there are many legitimate questions about its accuracy. Despite the final tally and the inauguration and the situation we find ourselves in, I do have one very affirmative statement to make. We won. That last clip was Stacey Abrams talking about the 2018 election that she lost by 55,000 votes, roughly, in Georgia. She said, I have one very affirmative statement to make. We won. There's Hillary again. The court took away the presidency from Al Gore. Gore, I think I carried Florida. Carrie McAuliffe, DNC chairman at the time. They stole the the presidential election. We actually won it. Biden, there he is. Al Gore won that election. These are all the biggest hitters, the heavy hitters. Obama got in on the act, too. It's hard to take them seriously about about election denialism 
when these are the things that they have said and done for years to try to delegitimize the last two Republican presidents. You can tisk tisk about what aboutism and say it's not the same. I've conceded some of those points, but overall, this is aboutism, and these critics need to live with that and answer for that, but they never will. That's what they're counting on, at least. We got to run. Just getting started on The Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. And we're also told that President Biden's power grab, I think, egregious abuse of presidential authority on this scheme to so-called, quote-unquote, forgive student loan debt, that it's popular. All right, well, it may not be legal, little legal niceties, and it may have some downsides, but it's popular. And you see Ron Klain retweeting anyone who says that, looking at some of the top-line polling. Well, it's interesting. The Atlantic noted that in a recent speech touting accomplishments of the administration, the student debt relief plan went unmentioned. In Biden's speech, I don't think that's an accident. Robert Cahaley, who runs Trafalgar polling, he says that they have seen a huge shift, quote, in favor of Republicans since Biden announced his student loan forgiveness package. No other issue, he wrote. This cycle has enraged middle and working class voters more than this. Now, whether that plays out over time, I don't know. That's what he's saying is showing up in their polling. And then What you'll sometimes see is them saying, oh, look, here's a poll from fill in the blank pollster where a small majority or a slight plurality is in favor of this plan. Well, the Cato Institute did a poll that found similar numbers, overall support or oppose the scheme. And then they introduced just a small handful of downsides, trade-offs like, hey, what would you still support this if it primarily benefited higher income people, if it raised your taxes, if it encouraged colleges to increase their tuition and fees, if it made more employers requiring college degrees, even if that wouldn't be needed to do the job. When people were introduced to even one trade-off or downside, which, of course, Republicans can convey, I think, quite easily, everything flipped upside down, and across the board, people started to oppose this policy, including 70-plus percent of independence on each point. So I'm not sure the politics cut the way the Democrats say they will, which is why they're not talking about this so much. Marsha Blackburn is next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
We continue. It's the Guy Benson Show. It is Wednesday. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is free every day. Now, we were talking not long ago, a couple weeks ago now, about the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and her trip to Taiwan. And there was a lot of buildup to that trip where I guess it leaked out that it was maybe going to happen. Still unclear how that got out. I think that was very unhelpful. And then the White House and Team Biden was sort of saying, you know, maybe this shouldn't happen. Maybe this is too provocative. The Chinese, the CCP, they started rattling their sabers over in Beijing saying, oh, this would be outrageous. This would be offensive. She ended up going anyway, I think, to her credit, and I applauded her for that. But there was a lot of drama around it. It was a Democratic trip, a Democratic delegation led by the Speaker of the House. Not the first speaker to go there, by the way. Well, one of our friends here on this program has just recently returned from her own trip over to Taipei. Senator Marsha Blackburn, who's a Republican of Tennessee, had a surprise visit to Taiwan, our allies over there. She's a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, among others. She's author of the book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman, and she joins us now. Senator, great to have you back. It is good to be with you. Thank you so much. I would love to hear about your trip to Taiwan, how it came to be, how you basically kept it under wraps, who you went with, what the purpose of the trip was. Just uh, give us everything that you can about your trip to Taiwan. Sure, absolutely. Well, I actually was making several stops in the Indo-Pacific and uh, had wanted to get into Taiwan earlier this year, and it just it didn't come together. So this time it did. And I was into Fiji, the Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, and into Taiwan meeting with President Tsai, and also with the foreign minister, the national security crew that is there. And, of course, our American Institute in Taiwan team that is on the ground. And we were able to work with the Taiwan representative here in D.C. in making plans for this trip. And, Guy, this is an important trip to make when you look at the aggressiveness of the Chinese Communist Party. And as you know, I have really been vocal about my concerns with how aggressive the CCP has become, especially under the Biden administration, because they don't think they're going to call them out on anything. They feel like they've got a little bit of free reign. And the Chinese Communist Party is intent on being globally dominant by the time we get to the midpoint of the century. So I think it's important for us to show our support for Taiwan and to make certain that we are conducting foreign military sales to Taiwan so they have what they need to protect themselves. And likewise, Taiwan would like for us to recognize their independence. They have worked hard to be independent of China. They have a founding father. They have their own constitution. They have their own president. They have a cabinet. They have a military. The Taiwanese people consider themselves to be Taiwanese, not Chinese. 
And this is an important difference for them. They well, and they have elections, to, right? They have elections, yes, and they, and have and they elections. elect representatives very much unlike in China. Right. They have a parliament. Uh, they set national rules. They have a national uh, museum, a national theater. They have a national pride among their people uh, over being independent from China. Now, here's the interesting thing. As I have visited with other island nations there in the Indo-Pacific, they are very concerned about how aggressive China is being against Taiwan. They fear that if China overtakes Taiwan, that the other dominoes, the other island nations will see China come at them, to overtake them, to rule them. And they don't want that. They want to continue to do business with what they call their traditional partners, which are the U.S., Australia, New Zealand. And they like their independence. They like working with us. We are their preferred partner. And it is important that we support these countries that are there in that region facing this pressure every single day from the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, they're a democracy. The CCP runs a brutal closed system, uh, rife with abuse and, of course, genocide as well and all the other forms of repression that we've talked about on this show multiple times. Did you go with other members of Congress or was this just uh, you out on your own or was this a CODEL? It was me traveling uh, by myself. It's still called a CODEL, if you will, but there were no other members that went with me. We had a window of opportunity to get into Fiji and Papua New Guinea and Solomons and Taiwan. And like I said, working with the Taiwan office here in D.C., we were able to structure that trip, jump on a plane, hop over there, Mm -hmm. do these meetings and show our nation's support for Taiwan and the people that are fighting every day to stay free of Chinese oppression. And you mentioned something that is so important to them that they brought up time and again, and President Tsai brought it up. They share our values of democracy, diplomacy, liberty, freedom. They share those values with us. And they want to continue to be able to exercise those freedoms and share those values. And it's one of the reasons they push back on the CCP every single day. Senator Blackburn, I was referencing right before you joined the show all of the drama surrounding Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And again, I'm very glad that she went. I'm glad that she didn't back down. I'm glad she didn't cave to some of the pressure, including from the Biden administration reportedly not to go. She went. I think that's good. I think the fact that it leaked and we had all of this sort of back and forth and you know, hand-wringing in advance, that was unhelpful. Were you mindful of that kerfuffle as you planned this trip to make sure that it wasn't something that people knew about until it was over? Or yes, happening at we least. thought it was important. To, yes, we thought it was important to skip the drama, uh, to go conduct our meetings, uh, get the information that we needed. You know, we um, 
and I was very pleased shortly after I returned that the administration moved forward with the $1.1 billion sale. Important to note, a foreign military sale, not a gift. Um, but move forward with that sale to Taiwan so that they can enhance their defense capabilities in order to protect themselves. Meanwhile, closer to home, Senator, I want to ask you about this. President Biden's scheme, this giveaway on so-called forgiveness of student loans. I just talked about it a little bit in the last segment. We've covered it quite a lot here. I think it's an outrageous abuse of power. I think it is terrible policy just on the merits for inflation, for higher education costs, the continuing spiral there, just the fundamental unfairness of it to so many people. The list goes on. And I think the Democrats really could be in some trouble if Republicans come after them on this and and really press the case. There are a lot of, I think, resonant critiques to be offered. You have been highlighting one of them polling suggesting that a large majority of Americans are worried that this move, which is a multi hundreds of billions of dollar you know, price tag, that this will yet again contribute to the inflation problem. I think that's basically undeniable at this point. It just kind of blows my mind that they would do something like this ever, but especially at this moment of inflationary pressures that we saw the Gallup poll out today, three out of four working class families are feeling economic hardship because of the inflation problem already, and now they've taken another inflationary step here. Well, indeed. You know, and this is going to be about a trillion-dollar package by the time you finish his student loan giveaway. And, Guy, the number one call coming to our office is people who are angry about this. And a great example of it is, a single mom who is in my church, and she has a daughter who went to college to be a teacher. Now, both of them, each of them worked two jobs for five years, and this daughter did as much as she could do at a community college. Then she transferred to a four-year university, and she got her teaching certificate. She came out with no debt. So once she got that diploma, got that teaching certificate, went to work, she was so excited. So this mom texted me, and she said, okay, Marsha, where is my tax credit? What are they going to do for me? We played by the rules. We paid our way. We did the heavy lift, and now... You're going to start forgiving student loans. This is what has people enraged. And why should a small business owner who never got to go to college but hung out the shingle, went to work, why should they be paying for somebody who is going to take five or six years to get through college and then go to work, and they don't have a job where they're making $125,000 a year, but they're going to start getting student loan forgiveness. It is vastly, greatly unfair. Yeah. And, I mean, it's also grad school, right? You've got basically nurses being forced to pay for some of doctors' debt, right? You've got, you know, paralegals and, you know, cops walking the beat being forced to pay for attorneys' debt, a portion of their debt that they have accrued knowingly, entering into that contract, 
And I think the story that you just told, Senator, that's just one of countless similar stories, literally countless, all across the country where it just feels like increasingly in our society, whether it's on immigration or whether it's on this, people who do the right thing the right way are punished and they look like idiots and chumps because if you do things the wrong way and you expect the government to come in, I mean, that is what is, I think, increasingly incentivized. I think that is exactly backwards and perverse. And it's not just the unfairness of these individual policies, although they're very unfair. I think it also contributes to a culture of irresponsibility and lack of accountability. And I think that that is hugely damaging to the country. Oh, indeed it is. And it causes people to lose their incentive to get the job done for themselves. And people, you know, one of the things I thought about in all of this is I have talked to so many parents who are just incensed with this policy. My grandmother would always say, now, Marsha, you need to work for this. And it didn't matter if it were something in 4-H club or if it were working to get an A in a class or a competition I wanted to win. She would talk about the work ethic and how important it was to work so that you earned whatever it was you were trying to achieve. You earned that right. And I, I think that many people look at this and they say, this is just giving people that free education. They're not going to appreciate it as much as something that they work for and earn. And being able to earn something and celebrate that success is something that we as Americans really celebrate. And we pride ourselves in that. And we put effort into it. And to take that away and say, okay, um, it's your lucky day. We've decided we're going to forgive $10,000 of this category of loans and 20000 of this category. And for people that paid them off during COVID, not before, not after, but during COVID, you're going to get a refund. People are going, hey, wait a minute. Yep. And everyone else gets screwed. College. Right. All, yeah. all the people who do only 13 percent of Americans hold this debt, 13 percent. And the other, what, 87 percent, people who didn't go to college, people who did and did the right thing and paid off their loans, people who sacrificed and went to schools that were more affordable. All of those people are now stuck with the bill on behalf of the others. It is just, I guess the word just keeps coming up. It is so unfair. And of course, on top of all of it, and this is the last point I'll make, and you can react, Senator, it will do the opposite of fixing the root problem, which is the spiraling costs of higher education, which have vastly outpaced inflation for a long time. The numbers are completely preposterous. They're breathtaking when you look at how much this stuff costs to go to school. And this will accelerate that trend. This is this is a Band-Aid that will last about four seconds until there's the next demand for the next bailout while these colleges and universities are incentivized to keep raising the price over and over again, because at some point they feel like there's going to be a taxpayer backstop to all of it. That's the reality as well. That's a problem, I think, for future students. Of course it is, because now basically what you did was to release – 
them from the responsibility of getting the cost of a four-year degree down or a, uh, a an associate's degree from a community college. They can say, oh, well, the government's going to bail it out. So we can continue to raise our prices, pay That's professors right. more, give them more sabbatical years. Right. Administrators, right, all this overhead, a bunch of diversity administrators out there, DEI experts making six figures. There's like 17 of them on every campus. The bloat just gets bigger and bigger, and there is absolutely no uh, effort and no incentive and no reason for them to scale back the problem. It exacerbates the problem. It's just like one on this long list of issues that we've touched on here with U.S. Senator Marshall Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. Senator, great to have you here. Glad that you're home. Glad you were in Taiwan. But of course, happy to have you back in the USA. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. That's Marshall Blackburn on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I think California really is leaning in. And of course, the federal government has a goal of the president has announced by 2030 that half of the vehicles in the U.S., the new ones sold, would be electric. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, that was the energy secretary under President Biden, Jennifer Granholm, applauding California and their move to ban gas-fueled vehicles coming up in the next, I think, 15 years or so. And you have to get electric vehicles. Then the electrical grid was in trouble. They said, actually, please don't charge your vehicles and set your thermostats to 78 or 80 degrees at night. And don't run appliances. Granholm has been saying California is a model for the nation. Cut 15. California is in the lead, can show the rest of the nation how it is done. Oh, yeah. Last night, local media rolling blackouts happened Tuesday in several Bay Area cities. Energy providers confirmed with more blackouts potentially coming. That's the preview of the Green New Deal in California, which is a giant cautionary tale for the country. And Granholm thinks they're awesome. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour coming your way here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. This is our middle of three hours, all of which are available for free on demand on our podcast if you can't listen live. GuyBensonShow.com, your one-stop shop for all of it. Podcast, listening live, and beyond. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Also options there. You can follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter, and Instagram. In my capacity as a Fox News contributor, I'll be on special report tonight on the panel. Looking forward to that around 645 Eastern on Fox News Channel. Then talking with my friend Kennedy around 730 on Fox Business Network. Hope to see you one or both places. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow up big today, ending in the green, 436 points up and closing at 31,581. Joining me now is Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News. Britt, great to have you. Thanks, Guy. Glad to talk to you. I would like to start by picking your brain about the Pennsylvania Senate race. Early polling showed the Democrat John Fetterman with a very big lead, double digits, 
over Dr. Mehmet Oz, generally just known as Dr. Oz. He had a bruising Republican primary and was really struggling to gain traction. It seems like in the last couple of days, maybe week plus, he is getting closer to Fetterman. It's now a mid-single-digit race. And a lot of the back and forth is coming down to the issue of whether or not these candidates are going to debate. Fetterman, who's the lieutenant governor, suffered a stroke. He is having some trouble speaking in certain settings, but he's giving interviews and giving speeches, but they're saying a debate is something he can't do. This is becoming an issue in the campaign, and I wonder what you make of the trajectory of this race, Oz's chances for a comeback here, and then Fetterman's team trying to basically say we have to limit his interactions because of the after effects of his stroke. Well, as a as a rule guy in past campaigns that I've covered or followed, uh, the debate over debates that often happens has never ended up being much of an issue. This is a little different, though, because serious doubts and I think genuine legitimate doubts have been raised about whether as whether Fetterman is in any position to hold the office of senator. After all, what senators do is they debate, um, and if you can't really speak. Uh, from the first day in office, that's a handicap that's meaningful. So that's a question, um, how the actual debate or what format there may be, if they ever get around to having one, it seems to me is less important than the fact that that uh, it looks like we have a candidate here who's about to join a very famous debating society to wit the United States Senate who can't debate. So that's a problem. Also, I would add this guy, um, all this time during um, during the summer, when uh, Fetterman looked like he was riding high in the polls, uh, Oz was out in the st- state of Pennsylvania, where I spent a fair amount of time. He was out meeting people, campaigning, old-fashioned sort of, um, you know, uh, glad-handing and, and trying to get people to know him. And the impression I've had from what I've read about it and what I've seen of it is that he's done pretty well with that. Now, whether that means that he's now in a position to win the race in a state that, you know, is a kind of a swing state is not yet clear. But I think he's in a lot better position than he was. And I think he's got a really good shot at winning this race. Yeah, it's interesting. And the other thing about Fetterman, part of the reason he might not want to debate one way or another is he is very left wing. Fetterman is not sort of the Bob Casey style liberal Democrat, sort of centrist in certain ways. He is just out there on the fringe, issue after issue, Bernie Sanders, Liz Warren. I think the more that he's pressed on that type of thing, the less helpful it is to his chances. I think it's going to be a very close race, and it seems to be tightening a little bit. And, you know, the question is, is he up for the job? Should he be able to debate? And we all hope that he recovers fully from his stroke. There's no ill will there at all, and there shouldn't be from anyone. There is, I think, a fair question. If he's ducking debates because he can't really speak in those types of settings, is that something voters ought to consider? Here's Fetterman over the weekend speaking at an event where he's trying to mock his opponent, Dr. Oz, but he's sort of struggling to get through it a little bit. Cut 13. Please understand the stakes in this race. Send me to Washington, D.C. to send so I can work with Senator Casey and I can champion the union way of life in Jersey, excuse me, in D.C. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's an honor. I live eight minutes away from here. And when I leave tonight, I got three miles away. Dr. Oz in his mansion in New Jersey. You've got a friend and you have an ally. Send me to Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steelworkers. So, I mean, you know, not horrible. He can communicate, but there were some some issues there in, ter- in terms of like word selection and just the, the cadence of what he was trying to say and got a few things muddled. You are rooting for someone, Britt. I'm sure we agree on this to to come back and recover from a health episode like this at the same time. If he's able to give speeches and do interviews, I don't quite understand how they can say, well, he's not able to debate for medical reasons. No, I agree with that guy, and I hear that. It's not exactly a scintillating performance on his part. And if uh, Dr. Oz has to overcome a couple of things. One is that, first of all, Trump supported him, and that's a strike against him with a a certain segment of the electorate. Um, And the other thing is, of course, that he... He's, you know, he's is not a professional politician. Has not been. That can help us in some respects, not in others. But if people think he's weird, um, and that's that's uh, that's a problem. Um, if he comes across through the course of the campaign now that we've reached the season where people are really focused on it, as a reasonable alternative to a man they may now, with good reason, have doubts about uh, in the person of Fetterman, I think that. That would help his chances quite a lot. Meanwhile, Britt, there's this big contretemps, particularly here in the Beltway, over some of these Senate races, whether it's Pennsylvania or Arizona or elsewhere around the country, where Republicans, I don't know how else to put it, they are getting crushed by Democrats in the fundraising department. I mean, it's not close. You look at some of these totals of money raised, and it's like, you know, 10x in some cases. And the cash-on-hand race is just brutal for these Republicans, some of whom are first-time candidates, with the Democrats working very hard to negatively sort of define them in the minds of voters in these very important races. And it seems like there's sort of a fight between Rick Scott, the NRSC chairman, and Mitch McConnell and his operation. And then a lot of the Trump people are being very critical of McConnell, uh, which I find a bit puzzling because McConnell has raised a ton of money and is spending – a lot of that money through his pack on these campaigns. In fact, they just put out a list uh, today or yesterday, millions of dollars going to all the most important Senate races across the country, with the one exception of Arizona, because I think there's sort of a proxy fight happening there, a bit in the weeds. But like $3 million on average to each of these races from McConnell's pack. On the other side of this, you've got President Trump, the former president who has raised more money than anyone. He has sucked up So much money from Republican donors, Republican grassroots voters. And one of the criticisms that is starting to come to the fore is that he is sitting on this mountain of cash and not really doing almost anything with it to actually help Republicans win. So people are, you know, shooting their slings and arrows at McConnell, who is at least going to bat with money, even for candidates that he would probably prefer not be the Republican nominees. These are people that Trump has endorsed and pulled over the finish line. And then Trump isn't taking any of that money or almost none of it and devoting it to these races. I think that is a very interesting dynamic right now in Republican politics. And I wonder what you make of it. 
I agree entirely. It is an interesting dynamic. You've got McConnell out there spending money on candidates, some of whom have criticized him, uh, for the obvious, for the simple reason that what McConnell wants is for his party to get control of the Senate. Um, and if we've ever had an example in recent years of the importance of that, look what happened after the two Georgia Republican Senate races went to the Democrats. Those were winnable races. That gave the Democrats control of the Senate, which was not necessarily expected, at which point that got visions of historical grandeur dancing in in Joe Biden's head, and he has pursued this hardcore lefty agenda uh, that is part of the reason why he's in a lot of trouble and why Republicans should have such a good chance this time around. None of that seems to matter to Donald Trump. Uh, Many people hold him responsible for the fact that they lost the Senate. Um, of course, you know he never would have. He would never blame himself. He never does about almost anything. So there we are, guy, and that's that's what the issue kind of is. And you know, that's where and and and, and that, that's where it's telling that Donald Trump is not spending the money that he raised to help the candidates, many of whom he supported. It's uh, ought to be telling. One wonders if it will be. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is money is not necessarily determinative. Uh, You know, Democrats have railed for so many years against the corrosive influence of money in politics, except, of course, for their own money in politics, which they're very good at raising. And they have become the big party or the big money party, I should say. They are the party of money in politics these days. They often outraise and outspend Republicans. I remember in 2010, GOP ended up netting 63 House seats that year, but they were shellacked in the fundraising department. It didn't matter because just the the fundamentals and the trajectory of the race and just the the atmosphere in the country was far too much for the Democrats to overcome, even with all their cash. That being said, if there are a handful of races that will determine control of the United States Senate, which I believe will be the case this time in some very tight contests, then you can start to look at money and the ability to get your message out, positive and negative, against your opponent. That can matter in some of these crucial contests. And I think it's impossible for Republicans just to overlook those struggles right now and some of the reasons behind those struggles and say, oh, well, you know, uh, it's irrelevant. I guess all will be happy and good if the Republicans pull this thing off. If they can't, if they fall short, particularly in the Senate, I think the recriminations, Britt, could get very ugly. Well, yes, and you wonder against whom the recriminations will go. I mean, if it is if it is in part the fact that Donald Trump wouldn't spend any of the or much of the money that he has raised on the candidates he's supported, and perhaps even others, uh, you'd think they would be, uh, go in his direction. But the people who support no, Donald think. Trump hold him blameless no matter what. Yeah, that's right. So it's you know, McConnell's actually out there raising and spending the money on these people that they were all supporting and voting for because Trump was championing them. And then, you know, McConnell's somehow the bad guy. I think that that doesn't quite wash when it comes to facts. And I think that we should wait and see, because I I think I'm trying to stay away from some of the precriminations. I think a lot of these races are winnable. I think the Senate is winnable. But I'd be feeling a lot better if a few factors were slightly different. But hey, as you said, Britt, this is the major season right now where the overall elected electorate rather starts to dial in significantly September and then into October. We'll be watching it very closely here. And Britt Hume, we always appreciate your time here on The Guy Benson Show. Britt, thank you. You bet, Guy. We'll be right back. 
I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. We opened the show yesterday with a full hour on education, schools, teachers unions, etc. A few more notes on that. The teachers in Seattle on day one of school have gone on strike. Imagine locking kids out of school for a year and a half as they did up and down the West Coast. And then finally, here's the first real full quasi normal year of school upcoming. And on the very first day of classes on strike, you go. The contempt for parents and students is extraordinary. And that's happening, by the way, right in the backyard of Senator Patty Murray. We played you the clips of her yesterday on the show where she was effectively under questioning from CNN, saying no regrets on the school closures. And I'm sure she will have not a word to say in criticism of the teachers union in Seattle here because she's beholden to them. As is her party. Meanwhile, there's this program called Head Start. It's a pre-K program, a federal program. It's actually a huge waste of money. Unfortunately, in theory, it seems like a good idea, but the very best possible studies on the efficacy of Head Start have shown that it is ineffective and in some cases counterproductive. But we spend a huge amount of money on it anyway, this pre-K program. And wouldn't you know it, because it is run by the federal government, even in spite of CDC guidance, Head Start preschoolers are required to wear masks In these settings, it flies in the face of the science that we've known about for years. But even the very belatedly updated CDC guidance, this doesn't jibe with that. But because it's a bunch of neurotic leftists who run this, the preschoolers who are in Head Start are forcibly masked. They're like the last group of people as an across the board policy who still have to be masked preschoolers. It is totally divorced from the data, and I think it is actually abusive. And they have an enrollment problem because a lot of parents don't want their preschoolers forcibly masked. Imagine that. So it's a big, warm welcome back to school from the people running Head Start and the Seattle Teachers Union. Meanwhile, Randy Weingarten, one of the biggest teachers union bosses in the country, she wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal firing back at her critics and the critics of school closures. It was, of course, just a tornado of gaslighting and blame shift. And just, I think, yet another example, an illustration of the absolute arrogance and lack of accountability on her part. She is the symbol of the arrogance and the abuse and the anti-science manipulations and the agenda that were so harmful for so many kids for so long, the disastrous consequences of which we are just starting to learn about and quantify. She's the symbol of all of that. She's not the lone culprit, but she, I think, symbolically represents all of it, and she's here in the Wall Street Journal, guns blazing, attacking her critics, just like she's attacked parents, for example. Which brings me back to the point that I made yesterday and will make multiple times between now and November 8th, and that is this is the first national election that we're having upcoming here in two months since all of this went down. There will be no accountability from the union. There'll be no accountability from the Democrats who run the country. The only accountability that will be meaningful in any way 
for Randy Weingarten and her ilk will come at the ballot box. And that will only happen if parents and people who care about this show up and make their voices heard and don't get drowned out in some of these other issues. Imagine if the Democrats have this midterm election and emerge somewhat unscathed after what they did. That cannot be allowed to happen. If nothing else motivates you ahead of November, let this motivate you. Accountability on behalf of children who deserve it. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show and the short broadcast week here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free on demand every day. Back with us now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple books, including Ball of Collusion, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, great to have you here. Uh, Guy, thanks so much. All right, let's start with this ruling from a federal judge in the Mar-a-Lago raid case. I know Trump allies are citing this decision as a win for Trump. A lot of legal analysts, especially on the left, seem to be melting down over it. What happened here? What's the significance? Well, I, I don't see how it could be seen as anything other than a win for Trump. I think it may be uh, an ephemeral win, uh, but it certainly is. He asked the court for the appointment of a special master, and she granted it. So um, that's a win. Uh, I, I think people are a bit surprised by it, even though – uh, the judge, Aileen Cannon, signaled early on that she was inclined to grant a special master, which I guess I should uh, just pause and say a special master is basically yes. a, a lawyer appointed by the court who would oversee the process of sifting out uh, privileged documents that were taken in a search to make sure that they don't get revealed to the uh, team that's actually doing the investigation. The Justice Department has an in-house process for it where they do it unilaterally. They take some lawyers who are not assigned to the case, and they're what they call the tank team or the privilege team. They go through it first and try to identify uh, privileged documents. The, uh, obviously, a person would rather have a court oversee that than have the government do it itself. Uh, so that's what the special master is. And I think, Guy, the reason people are surprised that she ordered it is by the time she issued the order, the government had already finished the process. So there was a good argument that, you know, even if you didn't get into all the uh, legal disputes over privilege and what the extent of it is, et cetera, uh, the fact of the matter is it was moot in the sense that they had already gone through their process and passed the documents along, that the, the past the documents that they determined were non-privileged uh, passed those along to the, uh, to the prosecution team. So I think that's the surprise that, you know, Trump could wait two weeks to file. The judge could wait an additional two weeks to rule. Uh, the government finishes the process in the meantime. It's not like the government didn't have permission to do the process. They laid it out in the warrant, and the uh, magistrate judge signed off on it. Uh, and yet, you know, here we are. They're through their process, and she's now – it's almost like she called in a relief pitcher in the 11th inning. You know, I think people thought the game was over. So now what? Well, I think probably now what happens is the the government files – uh, an expedited appeal 
in the 11th Circuit uh, because there's aspects of this ruling that I don't think they can live with. Uh, I'm a little surprised, though, Guy, that they haven't done that already. Now, under the rules, they have 30 days, but people should understand part of her ruling, Judge Cannon, was that uh, the government cannot use the documents that were seized at Mar-a-Lago in furtherance of the investigation until the special master goes through those documents. So that's part of what I think the government would find objectionable, and I would have thought by now they'd be in the 11th Circuit asking for an expedited appeal to get that undone. It's <clears throat> A lot of people are overstating that. I've heard a number of times David Spunt's been very good on this on Fox, but I've heard reported in a number of places uh, where they say the investigation is suspended. That's not true. What's suspended is they can't use the documents that were seized because that's those are the subject of this dispute over what's privileged and what's not. But let's not forget, they had a criminal investigation going before they ever did the search. So it's not like they don't have uh, other things that they can do. They've been doing plenty. Meanwhile, on the broader picture of this thing, there's another report out suggesting that some of the documents that were seized from Mar-a-Lago by the feds entailed sensitive defense secrets from a U.S. ally or at least a foreign country, including on a nuclear program and nuclear weapons. That's a leak. We don't know exactly how true it is, but let's just say it's plausible. I think we can all wait and gather more information and see whether or not that bears out. But does that change anything in your mind, Andy, in terms of what happened here, or at least what appears to have happened here, based on what we know thus far? No, I don't think so. I, you know, I think, Guy, that um, we all suspected – I mean, I don't want to say that uh, I was hoping that there would be, um, you know, very heavily classified – material at Mar-a-Lago, because it shouldn't be at Mar-a-Lago. But at the same time, I would like to think that the, the Justice Department wouldn't haul off and do a search warrant uh, on these unprecedented circumstances unless there was serious stuff involved. And the fact that we had reported to us uh, up until now uh, the, the idea that there's over 300 documents there uh, that are classified, that are found there, which is which entails hundreds of pages of documents, and that probably a third of them are in a very highly uh, classified category. And then you factor in, guy, that um, the stuff that reaches the president's desk in the uh, intelligence and national security realm tends to be the highest classified information in the government because that's where the tough calls have to be made. Uh, it makes sense that there would be information like that. But as you say, it's a leak. We haven't had it confirmed yet. But I would, I've, I've assumed there were pretty heavy-duty classified documents there. Mm -hmm. We've heard the former Secretary of State and twice-failed presidential candidate Hillary Clinton wading into this, saying, paraphrasing here on Twitter, since we're talking about my emails again, let's remember that none of my emails were classified. This is Andy, yet another lie from this woman about her classified materials scandal. She still won't stop lying about it. No, and in fact, we can't even make an assessment of what she had because she purged half of the 60,000-plus emails that, that she had, which, just to repeat uh, and, and uh, remind people of this, she created systematically 
a communication system that was designed to defeat government record-keeping requirements. Donald right. Trump may end up getting prosecuted not only for mishandling classified information, but for record retention violations. And when that happens, I think people are going to remember that leaving classified information aside, Mrs. Clinton not only took to her own use, converted in violation of federal law, thousands of federal files, she destroyed thousands of federal files. Right. She destroyed the evidence, destroyed a lot them. of it. Right. And, and despite that, even though we know that she destroyed a lot of it, we still have evidence about what we do know of that there was, in fact, a lot of classified materials in that trove, including at the very highest level. So unsurprisingly, very much in character, she continues to lie about that. And also, by the way, that was an email server that the FBI said was extremely vulnerable to foreign hacking, which is also a separate question than papers in some files, perhaps behind a locked door at Mar-a-Lago. Not to defend that, but there's an argument that what she did was as bad or worse, but here she is swooping in trying to assert things that are simply factually wrong. Yeah, I think this is one of these cases, Guy, where the Justice Department, with respect to Trump now, the Justice Department probably believes that they have a prosecutable case on at least some grounds. And what it comes down to is, is this a case we should bring? And the best defense that Trump has along those lines is named Hillary Clinton. I mean, she's basically the precedent that says it wouldn't be fair to pull the trigger on a Trump prosecution because we let that one go. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a fairly reasonable point. And that's not a defense of him. That is an application of a standard. And I guess she feels compelled again to lie, as she often does about so many things on this subject. And I think the lies actually only underscore the point that you're making and that I'm making right here. And we'll watch where it goes. Do you still believe, Annie, because it seems like your thought process has evolved in recent days. We had Bill Barr on the show last week, former AG. He thinks there's a real risk that the DOJ is going to indict the former president. You were beginning to come around to that view as well last week. Where do you sit right now on that question? Well, my caveat on this guy was I still don't think that they want to do a classified information case on Trump. Just because classified information in the best of circumstances is a hard case to bring because it, it always carries the possibility of exposing the classified information, which, of course, you don't want to do. And this is not the best of circumstances. There are you know, unprecedented aspects to this. And I don't think they want to do the first ever records retention violation case. But, you know, I don't think they want the first ever prosecution of a former president to be that when for two centuries, you know, we, we deemed those records to be the, pop, the personal property of the president. Where I've always had reservation is on obstruction of justice. We didn't have a good idea until last week what their obstruction evidence is. It looks to me like it's pretty strong. And what's dangerous, I think, for former President Trump in that regard is, uh, as Attorney General Barr likes to talk about meat and potatoes crimes, these are the obstruction activity is the kind of stuff that people can wrap their brain around. It's not complicated. And everybody knows that if you, you know, make misstatements to the grand jury or you tamper with evidence, you're going to be prosecuted for that. So it's harder for him to make the case that he'd be singled out. Now, we'd be back again talking about the Hillary Clinton precedent because there was plenty of obstructive activity in that 
uh, investigation as well. But I do like think deleting evidence. Uh, the gov- yeah, the, the government takes the government takes obstruction, you know, very seriously. And I think the thing with Trump uh, in terms of prosecuting a politically fraught case is it has to be behavior that people can understand, be convinced it's wrong and be convinced that if they did it, they'd be prosecuted. Yeah, so that's a couple different criteria that they have to think about. Finally, Andy, the Steve Bannon issue off on the side here. There's a report that he's going to turn himself into authorities tomorrow on some charges. I saw another bulletin that he's going to face an indictment, I guess, in another state, Nevada, coming up soon. What's this case about? It's sometimes hard to keep straight the various investigations, federal, state level, et cetera. What's the Bannon angle here? Guy, I just put a column up explaining this case on uh, National Review, but basically this is the case that Trump pardoned him on. So this was the case where they – the allegation is there was a fraud conspiracy where they uh, had this outfit that was called We Build the Wall, where they were going to you know, co- construct the Trump wall but with private donations. They raised over $25 million, and the allegation is even though they told people every dime was going to be spent on – wall construction, they skimmed off the top over a billion dollars for uh, personal expenses. Uh, Bannon had four co-defendants, co-conspirators, allegedly, in the federal indictment. Trump pardoned Bannon, but didn't pardon the other three guys who've all been prosecuted. Two of them have pled guilty. One of them had a mistrial. It's going to be retried next month. But this is basically, this is the case that he was pardoned on, but a, a president's pardon has no bearing on state prosecutions. It doesn't have any um, prohibitive effect. So basically, it's a politicized prosecution by the New York DA who, you know, won't prosecute ordinary crime, which is what's made the streets of Manhattan so unsafe (laughs) these days. Uh, But if you're a Trump ally, you will be prosecuted in New York. And perhaps elsewhere. So this is the wall-building grift that we're talking about here and the alleged criminal behavior around that. If you're keeping score at home, uh, it's difficult. (laughs) We're trying here with Andy McCarthy, our friend and colleague at Fox News, former federal prosecutor. Andy, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. Back with more on The Guy Benson Show next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, I meant to get to these stories yesterday, but we just ran out of time. It was a very busy day on the program, and I vowed that I would cover them. So here we are. First, in the Western Hemisphere, down in South America, there was a big vote over the weekend in the nation of Chile, where voters were going to have a referendum on whether or not to adopt a brand new constitution in that country that would have radically transformed it into basically a socialist left-wing place. Here's how the New York Times described it last week. Voters in Chile on Sunday could transform what has long been one of Latin America's most conservative countries into one of the world's most left-leaning societies. In a single ballot, Chileans will decide whether they want legal abortion, universal public health care, gender parity in government, empowered labor unions, greater autonomy for indigenous groups, rights for animals and nature, a constitutional right to housing, education, retirement benefits, Internet access, clean air, clean water, sanitation and health care, quote, from birth to death. That was all 
in this constitutional referendum, up or down in Chile, it would have been a huge change, really just an unrecognizable country. And the left-wing government was pushing for a yes vote to accept the new constitution and adopt it. The voters went to the polls, huge turnout in Chile over the weekend, and the result was resounding, a rejection by 23, 24 points. It was not close. The people of Chile looked at this and said, no, thank you. So the left is very angry down there, but this was sanity prevailing, at least for the moment, in the nation of Chile. Now it's back to the drawing board. They're going to keep trying to rewrite the Constitution. This isn't over. But the let's go for everything, turn the whole place into socialism, that got shot down resoundingly. And that is good news. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic Ocean, our British cousins have a new prime minister. Her name is Liz Truss. We told you when we were doing the show from London just a while back, a few weeks ago, that she was the front runner to win the Conservative Party leadership contest. And whoever emerged from that final two after a winnowing would become the prime minister for at least the next couple of years before the general election. Liz Truss was seen as the more conservative option of the last two standing. She did, in fact, prevail by a decent margin. And she announced in her victory speech a few days ago that she's a conservative and she means it. Cut 26. As your party leader, I intend to deliver what we promised those voters right across our great country. During this leadership campaign, I campaigned as a conservative and I will govern as a conservative. Good stuff. We love to hear it. Meanwhile, today, her first prime minister's questions in the House of Commons, which is often pretty raucous. And this was just a fabulous moment. Theresa May, the former prime minister, she's still an MP. So she got up and she asked a question of one of her successors. So you've got Liz Truss, the new prime minister, being asked a question by the former female prime minister, Theresa May. And I believe somewhere Lady Thatcher is looking down and smiling on this cut 30. Can I ask my right honourable friend, why does she think it is that all three female prime ministers have been conservative? It is quite extraordinary, isn't it, that there doesn't seem to be uh, the ability in the Labour Party to find a, uh, a female leader, or indeed a leader who doesn't come from North London. Yeah. I mean, I just, That is some good trolling right there and bit cheeky. They knew what they were doing. It was fun to watch. The U.K. has had three women running the show. And as you heard there, all three of them have been conservatives. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time now for the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, our final hour of three every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free on demand 
every day right there. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Catch me tonight on the panel with Brett Baer at Special Report. That's on Fox News Channel around 645 or so Eastern Time. And then Kennedy on FBN in the following hour. So a busy evening ahead. This hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, delicious, expanding. Many of you reached out over the long weekend trying it for the first time. You're enjoying it, which I did, in fact, predict, I have to say. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. And with us here in studio in Washington, D.C., our Tony Snow studio, is Byron York, chief political correspondent at The Washington Examiner, a Fox News contributor, author of the book Obsession, Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump. Byron, great to see you. Good to be here in person. Absolutely. All right. I want to talk to you about this escalating war of words between the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, a Democrat, and the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, a Republican. New poll out today has Abbott ahead by seven points in his reelection campaign against Beto O'Rourke. Lightfoot is teeing off on Abbott because Chicago has become the latest city that Abbott has been busing illegal immigrants to. It started with D.C. Mayor Bowser melted down here. So he said, "Okay, that worked pretty well. Then it was on to New York City. Mayor Adams went even crazier with all these incoherent, you know, blatherings and and sort of tantrums. And then maybe taking the cake is Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago. She most recently has gone after Abbott and suggesting he's a bad Christian. Cut 20. Here's what she said. He professes to be a Christian. This is not the Christianity and the teachings of the Bible that I know. And I think religious leaders all across the country are standing up and denouncing exactly this. Let's just start there, Byron. I'm confused what the point is. Greg Abbott is a bad Christian, she says, because he's putting illegal immigrants onto buses and sending them to a city that is proud, supposedly, of being a sanctuary city? I just do not think this has any religious uh, dimension. No. Of course, the old you call yourself a Christian line is, is not unheard uh, in politics, uh, often directed against Republicans. Uh, but, there, you know, there's this war of words now with the mayor of Chicago. There'd been a war of words with the mayor of New York City, been a war of words with uh, the mayor of Washington, D.C. And all, if you put them all together, I do not think Texas has sent even 10,000 uh, so far yeah. uh, to to other cities. Most of those, maybe 7,000, 7,500 have gone to Washington, D.C., 1,000, maybe two to New York, and a very small number, like 50, uh, to Chicago that seems to have gotten the mayor so so agitated. And and, and I think the, the point of this, and, and we should say that according to Texas authorities, uh, these migrants who crossed into the United States illegally uh, have been given the chance – to go to either New York, Chicago, or Washington, D.C. It's a voluntary thing. They're not being herded up and sent to these yeah, places. Pick your sanctuary city. They're all sanctuary cities. And many people cross the board illegally with a destination in mind, a goal to get somewhere in the United States. And for some of these people, I'm sure these bus trips are getting them closer to that uh, goal. So uh, what we've seen now is, is, is how small a number of uh, migrants some of these big cities can handle when these very small towns along the Texas border and the Arizona border, New Mexico and and, uh, California, are expected to deal with vastly larger numbers of illegal border Well, it's been, what, 200,000 or so plus for months on end down at the southern border every single month, 200,000 or more, 
And here's, as you say, less than 10,000 spread over three cities, big cities. And these mayors are crying uncle like this is some yes. sort of humanitarian crisis and an outrage and an affront against the Constitution. I see that Mayor Lightfoot said that Abbott sending these migrants, dozens of them so far to Chicago, dozens, yes. is anti-Christian, racist, and unpatriotic. She's yeah. really – she's going for it, Byron. <laughs> all of the smears well, how all do at you, once. How do you escalate from there? I mean that's the, that's the question. You You, you use the, the phrase humanitarian crisis, which is the precisely the phrase uh, that Mayor Bowser used here in Washington, D.C., saying right. that the arrival – of uh, these uh, illegal border crossers had caused a humanitarian crisis. Now, and, and Mayor Adams said our systems here in New York City, our resources, our money, our personnel are burdened by these illegal immigrants who are coming. Like <laughs> our schools, he's you know healthcare. It's like yeah. I have to say that's kind of the brilliance. of the, point. the governor's strategy. Uh, are you surprised here. how well it's worked? I, yes. At first, I was like, okay, this is a stunt. It's kind of cute. I see what he's getting. He's trying to make a point. I was not anticipating these mayors going through the roof, going like an 11 out of 10 right. and making his point so loudly for him. Right. I, I felt the same way, that it was a, a kind of a stunt, uh, but have since seen that it was actually – it makes a very – first of all, it makes a very, very serious point. Uh, second, it offers some small relief, um, you know, one twentieth of the, of the number arriving every month. But some small relief for communities along the border in Texas. It's been picked up by the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, mm -hmm. who's been doing some of the same stuff. So I, I think that, that an effort to kind of nationalize the border problem is a, is a good idea for Republicans, certainly, because this changed. The border situation, you and I have discussed it on several occasions. Yep. This changed when Joe Biden became president. As a result of Joe Biden becoming president because of what he had promised during the campaign. would have been the same with any other Democrat. The promises that were being made during the 2020 Democratic campaign were all sort of open borders or more open borders uh, promises. So uh, for Republicans to dramatize what is happening here as opposed to just trying to forget about it, it's happening some a small strip of land along the border, is a good idea. Which is what these sanctuary city mayors and these Democrats actually seem to want. And yeah. Adams was clumsy enough to say it out loud, basically saying, this is Texas's problem. They should provide housing for these people. Don't burden us with them up here. And it's like, okay, they support the policies. They are beholden to these left-wing immigration activists who effectively support illegal immigration. It's their party that's responsible for it, and they are saying either implicitly or explicitly, we're in favor of all of it. Just don't visit any of the problem on us. You all <laughs> deal with it down there, you Neanderthals. That's your deal. We're going to sort of clap from afar about how progressive all of this is, but don't you dare bring it into our backyard because then all the epithets start flying. Yeah. And again, I think it's a bad look, and, and I think some of the lashing out from these mayors, they don't seem sure-footed on what even they're trying to say or what mm -hmm. point they're trying to make because they're in this corner where there actually isn't a good point for them to make, and they kind of know it. Yeah, and it's true. And you know, we should also mention that the Biden administration is doing something kind of similar but secretly. I mean we've had a number of reports, for example, of uh, jetliners – uh, charter jets arriving uh, in the Westchester, New York area at the airport there in the middle of the night um, and bringing illegal border crossers to relocate them mm -hmm. uh, in the suburban area around New York City. 
Uh, this has been going on in other places as well. Uh, the, the, when you have such, we're talking about 200,000 a month, over 2 million so far this year. Um, when you're talking about numbers that big, all these people do not plan to settle on the Texas border. They have somewhere they want to go in the United States. And the, the Biden administration is actually accommodating them to some degree already. To a strong degree, actually, yeah. and they're completing the final leg of this human trafficking right. at U.S. taxpayer expense. Meanwhile, we're just sticking with Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago for just a minute. She just said this about Abbott in Cut 22. Listen. I'd love to have a conversation with Governor Abbott. I'd have a long list of things on my agenda, but I've been speaking, obviously, um, to him publicly about let's just – treat each other with respect. Let's treat the people um, who are traveling across our country uh, with respect um, and look for an opportunity uh, to have a more dialogue. I, I won't say more. I have some dialogue, some collaboration. Let's just treat each other with respect, she says, <laughs> having also questioned whether he's a good Christian and yeah. saying he's doing a racist, unpatriotic thing. That's very respectful, I guess, engagement by the mayor of Chicago, who also, I'll remind everyone, had this to say back in June at a public gathering, Cut 23. If you read Clarence Thomas' concurrence, he said, thank you, Clarence Thomas. Bleep Clarence Thomas. That's more respect and dignity from the mayor of Chicago, who's urging Governor Abbott to behave uh, the way that I guess she wants him to. Again, it just kind of feels like she and some of these other Democratic mayors are flailing. Well, we should mention that uh, the mayor has a lot of big problems to deal with in Chicago. And yes, she does. The most violent or one of the most violent cities in America, uh, just horrendous, horrendous murder rate, assault rate, so many shootings going on. Um, this is something that you would think would take nearly all of her time, uh, but she's managed she's to— she got a lot of time to yell at Greg find, Abbott, a find governor. a little time to, to yell at Greg Abbott. A man who's governing a state hundreds of miles away. Meanwhile, in Lakeview, Chicago, a nice neighborhood. I used to live right near Lakeview when I lived in Chicago. This was a violent robbery caught on a ring camera in the middle of the day, broad daylight, nice neighborhood Chicago. There's this woman walking sort of away from the camera— and then up behind her comes a pack of criminals, and they attack her. Just listen to some of the audio, which is chilling. Cut 24. That's what's happening on the streets of Chicago every yep. day. This one getting attention because of where it happened. And Lori Lightfoot, I mean, it's almost like Madam Mayor, maybe – Focus your attention and your indignance a little closer to home. Yeah, yeah. And, and remember, actually, there were a number of cities that had uh, terrible uh, episodes of violence in the, the summer of 2020 uh, when then-President Trump actually offered federal assistance for them to deal with some of the violence. And, and they said absolutely not. Angrily rejected. <laughs> they yeah. rejected rejected all of it. So uh, I would imagine, you know, they're, they're the the – after insulting Greg Abbott, the next thing they want uh, is federal assistance if if Texas does continue to send small numbers of uh, illegal border crossers to Chicago or to New York or to Washington. You know, the, the mayor uh, here in Washington asked for a huge amount of federal money yep. to deal with And I think the National Guard. And the Nas she wanted to call out the National Guard. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you can't make it up. Yeah.
Meanwhile, last point about Mayor Lightfoot and I mentioned this on the show a couple of days ago. I guess in one of these press conferences, she was sort of feeling herself and she was sort of suggesting that she welcomes these illegal immigrants because we're compassionate and Texas is awful. She said, I'd be happy to take and drain Texas of all of its residents. I wouldn't want to live in a state with a governor like that. She said that she welcomes these Texans to Chicago and that, quote, we'll rent the buses next time to bring them here. And Byron, number one, <laughs> I think we can take a look at where people are leaving. Do you have the stats on that moving. one? Yes. It's, it's not close no. and it's not the direction that she's suggesting. Uh, so maybe she feels that way, but clearly the American people more broadly do not. She's conflating illegal immigrants with Texans, calling them Texans, and then says maybe we'll rent the buses. I've been suggesting publicly that Governor Abbott hire a courier and deliver an invoice and see if this woman will actually pay for these buses. My guess is given the financial situation of Chicago, she will not. That's my suspicion. Yeah, and the obviously what she's kind of getting all messed up um, is the fact that uh, lots, lots of Americans uh, move inside the country uh, every year, and a lot of them move to Texas. That's right. They leave California and they go to Texas, or some of them leave Chicago and they go to Texas. I mean, there's a reason that the governor of Texas and the governor of Florida, both red states, have become really big players in Republican politics. One, because their states are big and they are growing. And two, because of that, they have to deal with a lot of political questions. They're just simply on a larger scale than some other uh, governors. So the 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 fact that uh, she's so angry about Texas uh, is a reflection of just how big and dominant Texas is becoming in our politics. Yeah, and she says it's like some hellscape, hellhole, fascist place where people are <laughs> fleeing to. Yes. A little odd. And so when you look at who's leaving Illinois, it's taxpayers individually, it is families, and it's businesses. And these politicians look around saying what's happening – their policies are happening. I'll just leave it at that. Byron York, it's always good to see you, especially here in studio. He's the chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, see you next time. Thank you. It's the Guy Benson Show, and our happy hour continues right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It is the happy hour. It is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for joining us. Well, we've been talking this week a lot about education, back to school, the teachers' unions. We got into some of it earlier today and for an hour on the show yesterday. It's a very big issue. And it is, in fact, back to school for producer Christine's daughter, Megan. And, Christine, am I correct that this would be third grade now for Megan? She has entered fourth grade. Fourth grade? Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I thought she I was know. in second grade last year. Nope. Fourth grade. Whoa. Okay. So how was day one? Was it a little bit more normal feeling than it has been? It really was. So it, it was a half a day. The whole week is a half a day, which I don't understand. But now What's the point I of don't, that? I, I don't know. I mean, they've had all these days, if it's meetings or something, to figure that out. But they just like to bother parents, I think, who have to work. Um, but Megan, it was so cute going to school today because she goes, oh! <gasps> She goes, Mommy, look. And there was no um, temperature taking because that was a big thing the last two years. And nobody was wearing a mask, not even teachers like they were last year. She believes that she can sit anywhere 
at lunch because last two years you were only allowed to sit next to one person and then you still had to be six feet apart from everybody else. And she has never seen the library. She's been at the school going on third year. She's never seen the library. So they'll finally reopen that as well as the art studio. Could you tell that there was like a difference in her attitude and just how she was feeling walking into the school on day one? Yeah, she said that she was allowed to hug a friend and nobody said anything to her, which last year they were like, don't touch each other. So she was excited Insane. about that. <laughs> I mean, it just it just makes me angry that that was even something like the lunch rules were moronic and make no sense science wise that a third or fourth grader would be worried that they could be scolded for hugging a friend. It's just what we put these kids through is ridiculous. I hope that this is a normal school year for Megan and Part of that would entail her mother not being one of the class moms. After the fiascos of last year, I assume that you have uh, passed that baton, Christine? Yeah, I'm not going to be a class mom. I already messed up, though, because Megan just came home and said, Mom, um, everybody's going to Maeve's birthday on Saturday. And I said, oh, I didn't get an invite, but I did, and I forgot. So now i got to beg the mother if Megan can still go. All right, we're off to a great start. <laughs> Happy school year. Happy back to school, Megan and everyone and all the kids out there. And I just hope that we can get a lot closer to full normal, even though we heard from the Biden administration that they feel like normal is bad and we can't return to normal. I think many, many millions of parents and kids would beg to differ. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today on the Guy Benson Show, we had back Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News. A lot of things to discuss with Britt. He had a sharp take as always. Here's part of that conversation. Listen, I would like to start by picking your brain about the Pennsylvania Senate race. Early polling showed the Democrat John Fetterman with a very big lead, double digits over Dr. Mehmet Oz generally just known as Dr. Oz. He had a bruising Republican primary and was really struggling to gain traction. It seems like in the last couple of days, maybe week plus, he is getting closer to Fetterman. It's now a mid-single-digit race. And a lot of the back and forth is coming down to the issue of whether or not these candidates are going to debate. Fetterman, who's the lieutenant governor, suffered a stroke He is having some trouble speaking in certain settings, but he's giving interviews and giving speeches. But they're saying a debate is something he can't do. This is becoming an issue in the campaign. And I wonder what you make of the trajectory of this race, Oz's chances for a comeback here, and then Fetterman's team trying to basically say we have to limit his interactions because of the after effects of his stroke. Well, as a as a rule guy in past campaigns that I've covered or followed, uh, the debate over debates that often happens has never ended up being much of an issue. This is a little different, though, because serious doubts and I think genuine legitimate doubts have been raised about whether as whether Fetterman is in any position to hold the office of senator. After all, what senators do is they debate, um, and if you can't really speak. Uh, from the first day in office, that's a handicap that's meaningful. So that's a question, um, how the actual debate or what format there may be, if they ever get around to having one, it seems to me is less important. 
than the fact that that uh, it looks like we have a candidate here who's about to join a very famous debating society to with the United States Senate who can't debate. So that's a problem. Also, I would add this guy. Um, all this time during um, during the summer, when uh, Fetterman looked like he was riding high in the polls, uh, Oz was out in the state of Pennsylvania, where I spent a fair amount of time. He was out meeting people, campaigning, old-fashioned sort of, um, you know, uh, glad-handing and, and trying to get people to know him. And the impression I've had from what I've read about it and what I've seen of it is that he's done pretty well with that. Now, whether that means that he's now in a position to win the race in a state that, you know, is a kind of a swing state is not yet clear. But I think he's in a lot better position than he was and I think he's got a really good shot at winning this race. No, it's interesting. And the other thing about Fetterman, and part of the reason he might not want to debate one way or another, is he is very left-wing. Fetterman is not sort of the Bob Casey-style liberal Democrat, sort of centrist in certain ways. He is just out there on the fringe, issue after issue, Bernie Sanders, Liz Warren. I think the more that he's pressed on that type of thing— the less helpful it is to his chances. I think it's going to be a very close race, and it seems to be tightening a little bit. And, you know, the question is, is he up for the job? Should he be able to debate? And we all hope that he recovers fully from his stroke. There's no ill will there at all, and there shouldn't be from anyone. There is, I think, a fair question. If he's ducking debates because he can't really speak in those types of settings, is that something voters ought to consider? Here's Fetterman over the weekend speaking at an event where he's trying to mock his opponent, Dr. Oz, but he's sort of struggling to get through it a little bit. Cut 13. Please understand the stakes in this race. Send me to Washington, D.C. to send so I can work with Senator Casey and I can champion the union way of life in Jersey, in, excuse me, in D.C. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's an honor. I live eight minutes away from here. And when I leave tonight, I got three miles away. Dr. Oz in his mansion in New Jersey. You've got a friend and you have an ally. Send me to Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steelworkers. So, I mean, you know, not horrible. He can communicate, but there were some some issues there in, ter- in terms of like word selection and just the, the cadence of what he was trying to say and got a few things muddled. You are rooting for someone, Britt, I'm sure we agree on this, to, to come back and recover from a health episode like this. At the same time, if he's able to give speeches and do interviews, I don't quite understand how they can say, well, he's not able to debate for medical reasons. No, I agree with that guy, and I you know, hear that. It's not exactly a scintillating performance on his part. And, you know, if uh, Dr. Oz has to overcome a couple of things. One is that, first of all, you know, Trump supported him, and that's a strike against him with a, with a certain segment of the electorate. Um, and the other thing is, of course, that he he's, you know, he's, is not a professional politician, has not been, that can help us in some respects, not in others. But if people think he's weird, um, and that's that's uh, that's a problem. Um, if he comes across through the course of the campaign now that we've reached the season where people are really focused on it, 
as a reasonable alternative to a man they may now, with good reason, have doubts about uh, in the person of Fetterman, I think that that would help his chances quite a lot. Meanwhile, Britt, there's this big contretemps, particularly here in the Beltway, over some of these Senate races, whether it's Pennsylvania or Arizona or elsewhere around the country, where Republicans, I don't know how else to put it, they are getting crushed by Democrats in the fundraising department. I mean, it's not close. You look at some of these totals of money raised and it's like, you know, 10x in some cases. And the cash on hand race is just brutal for these Republicans, some of whom are first time candidates with the Democrats working very hard to negatively sort of define them in the minds of voters in these very important races. And it seems like there's sort of a fight between Rick Scott, the NRSC chairman, and Mitch McConnell and his operation. And then a lot of the Trump people are being very critical of McConnell, uh, which I find a bit puzzling because McConnell has raised a ton of money and is spending a lot of that money through his PAC on these campaigns. In fact, they just put out a list uh, today or yesterday, millions of dollars going to all the most important Senate races across the country, with the one exception of Arizona, because I think there's sort of a proxy fight happening there, a bit in the weeds. But like $3 million on average to each of these races from McConnell's PAC. On the other side of this, you've got President Trump, the former president who has raised more money than anyone. He has sucked up so much money from Republican donors, Republican grassroots voters. And one of the criticisms that is starting to come to the fore is that he is sitting on this mountain of cash and not really doing almost anything with it to actually help Republicans win. So people are, you know, shooting their slings and arrows at McConnell, who is at least going to bat with money even for candidates that he would probably prefer not be the Republican nominees. These are people that Trump has endorsed and pulled over the finish line, and then Trump isn't taking any of that money or almost none of it and devoting it to these races. I think that is a very interesting dynamic right now in Republican politics, and I wonder what you make of it. I agree entirely. It is an interesting dynamic. You've got McConnell out there spending money on candidates, some of whom have criticized him, uh, for the obvious, for the simple reason that M- what McConnell wants is for his party to get control of the Senate. My full interview with Britt Hume and all of today's show, start to finish, available for free on demand on our podcast. Each and every day, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, a very special day in my household. We'll talk about why on the home stretch. Straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show Wednesday edition. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Catch me tonight on Special Report with Brett Baer. I'll be on the panel. Katie Pavlich joining alongside Mara Lyason. See you there on set. Plus, Kennedy in the next hour around 7.30 p.m. Eastern. That's on Fox Business. So hitting both TV channels tonight, please tune in or set a recording. Your call. Meanwhile, I teased this before the break. After all of that TV, I'll be going home for a home-cooked meal by Adam, my husband. We will be celebrating pretty quietly, pretty modestly, our anniversary. Three years ago today, September 7th, 2019, we got married out in California in Napa. It was a really spectacular weekend, and I can't believe that it's been three years. 
I know many of you are newer to the show. You've joined the radio family in the interim. But for a lot of the real ones, some of the OG listeners, I started this program all the way back with Marie Harf when it was Benson and Harf, then it became my show, when I was single or at least unmarried. And we had a lot of home stretches leading up to this date three years ago for the wedding. And producer Christine, as you might imagine, was extremely excited, somehow got herself invited to this wedding. She and Bobby came out. And in the lead up to the wedding, she on the air continually referred to it as, quote, our wedding, as if sort of she and I were planning it together and or she and I were getting married, which is obviously just not the case. And so my wedding went off basically without a hitch. It was one of the most spectacular memories, just the best weekend of my life, certainly. And we think back on it very fondly often, but especially on this anniversary. First of all, can you believe that was three years ago? I know we've had the pandemic. So, like, he and I got married, and then we went on our honeymoon, and almost immediately the world locked down, and we were shut into a house together for like a year. And we still love each other, and it went very well, so I think that's probably a good sign. But still, it doesn't feel like three years have passed between then and now, and yet here we are. I guess they're right about time flying, unless you disagree. Well, they say time flies when you're having fun. I'm not sure I would say the pandemic was fun, but I cannot believe you have been married for three years. I'll just have to say this. Our wedding was probably one of the best weddings anybody has ever been to. And uh, you you definitely <laughs> love going with this, the hour wedding thing. And then the other person who does this to me is Kennedy, whose show I'll be on tonight, as I mentioned. She loves to just tell people, sometimes strangers, I married him, oh. which is <laughs> technically funny. true in one way. Yep. I always have to give like a caveat explanation. She officiated. So she married like that form of the verb, but she and I are not married. So I just want to just make crystal clear that I'm not married to my producer. I'm not married to my friend Kennedy. I'm married to Adam. But you were there, and I know you sent me a few, and you tweeted actually at Cookies Jar 1988, a very nice anniversary message today. You sent a few texted photos from the wedding, one from the two of us at the very end of the night. I think the band, the Dueling Pianos, were playing Lights by Journey, which used to be a featured song at the end of every show until we couldn't use it anymore, which is such a killer. I love that song. I wish we could still use it. But that was the closer. That was the nightcap music-wise before the after party. And it was – I don't want to spend too much time, and maybe the audience will just indulge me going on and on about my own wedding three years ago, but – It was so fun. The weather, the setting, the food, the wine, of course, in Napa, the dueling pianos, the music, the dancing, the guests. It was just perfect, and I'm just so grateful to everyone still. It truly was like one of those like once-in-a-lifetime or bucket list, like you are at a wedding in a vineyard in Napa. Even like the night before, your rehearsal dinner was amazing. That was so much fun. Do you remember? I made so many new friends that night. Oh, I remember. It was hard for me <laughs> to forget. I just would occasionally – I didn't want my mind preoccupied with is Cookie overindulging in Mama's Juice? Does she need a minder? I knew that you would have Bobby there to babysit you the next day. But I, did, I kept an eye every so often, some tabs <laughs> on producer Christine to make sure things had not veered off course. And to your credit, you were on your best behavior 
for the most part all weekend. And then, you know, by the time the dancing was underway and the drinking, everyone was a little bit off their best behavior. But that's the point. That's the goal. And the dance floor was jammed from the moment the first song ended. We did our first dance with our mothers. We did a slow dance with our mothers to Rascal Flats, my wish. We switched moms mid-dance. Oh, yes. I absolutely cried the whole time. It was the only time that I really cried the whole weekend. I just, I'm like, just let it flow and let it go. It's fine. Crying in front of all these people. And then the dueling pianos and their drummer started out with Brown Eyed Girl. The dance floor flooded with people and people did not leave. It was packed until literally we had to shut down the party due to local ordinance. That was so cool and so fun. And I know you and Bobby spent a fair amount of time, if I recall correctly, on that dance floor. The only time I wasn't on the dance floor is if I was trying to refill, you know, the mama juice, <laughs> uh-huh. the glass. Or, and I don't know how this happened, you somehow put me next to Megan Kelly at the dinner no, that table. Was, that was a mistake <laughs> slash oversight. That was not meant to happen. We There was like a table of, I hate to say VIP, but like people with like a bit of a following or prominence. And I remember thinking, we have to keep Cookie away from these people. Let's find the <laughs> farthest possible table and put Cookie there. And then I don't know exactly what happened, but all of a sudden I look over and there you are. I'm like, oh gosh, she's probably trying to book all of these people on the show. And I did not get any formal complaints, so I guess – you exhibited at least some restraint, for which I thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I actually don't think I tried to book that day, that night. But I just, I remember sitting down with Bobby and looking over, because the, the seat next to me on the left was empty. And all of a sudden, a person sits down and I look to my left and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Megan Kelly. I was actually starstruck. And I've, I've worked at Fox for years. I've seen her, you know, in the <laughs> elevator and everything. But it was just, oh, it was the best wedding that everybody you know one of those types of weddings because i had one of my own where everybody just seemed to be friends especially on the dance floor you know yes. you just dance with everybody it was one of those and that's an testament to you and to adam too that you have all these great people surrounded you know by you and they're attracted you know to you so the vibe was, was great. The vibe amazing. was great. We had a lot of people who wanted to do toasts, so we sort of spread it out over the two different events. I think in total we had nine speeches over the course of the weekend, but we made it limited in terms of mm-hmm. like you had a clock. You were on the clock. Mary Catherine, who went last, blew out her time, but that was fine because she brought the house down and was amazing. But oh, yeah. everyone gave great toasts. The caterer. The food truck that we had at the vineyard for our rehearsal dinner, afterwards I went over to thank them and they said, we don't know you guys. You guys are total strangers. During the speeches, we were crying and we don't even know you. I was like, that's awesome. So we just had the best time. It still kind of felt like a dream and it was great and one of the fondest memories of my life, definitely the best weekend of my life. And Adam is just the best. He makes me laugh every day and we drive each other crazy but in the best way. We don't really fight. It's just uh, I feel like the good vibe for the most part has continued and prevailed, and I hope and pray that that continues for many years to come. So, wow, three years. Where has the time gone? Christine, it was great having you at that wedding. I will now finally shut up, mostly because I'm out of time. We have to move on, but we're going to go home and have a little dinner tonight. 
Looking forward to that. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place on the radio. Thank you so much for listening. See you on TV this evening. It is The Guy Benson Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.